Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to conservation and careful management of the state's forests to make them more resilient and better habitats for wildlife. Choosewood.com. This is St. Louis on the Air from St. Louis Public Radio. I'm Elaine Cha. Welcome to St. Louis on the Air and its first fresh show of 2024. I'm Elaine Cha. Just last week, on December 28th, the Endangered Species Act turned 50. It was a milestone in keeping things that live, grow, and travel in water, on land, and by air off the extinction list. Now, for many people, endangered species must immediately call animals to mind, like the bald eagle, for instance, or the grizzly bear, which are two of the ESA's most well-known success stories. But plants are very much part of all that lives and moves, and they're absolutely among hundreds of species that face the kinds of threats the Endangered Species Act is meant to address. Here to talk with us about the work they've done to conserve and preserve flora and how the ESA affects their work as Missouri Botanical Garden scientists, we welcome Matthew Albrecht, director of MOBOT Center for Conservation and Sustainable Development. Hello, Matthew. Hi, it's great to be here. We also have Becky Sucker, senior manager of MOBOT's Living Collections. Hello. Hi, thanks for having me. Thank you both for joining us today and Happy New Year. So... Let's start with the the basics of the Endangered Species Act. What is it that brought this about in the 1970s, Matthew? Yeah, so the ESA was really part of a broader response and an environmental movement at the time in the 1960s that um, sort of shed light on the fact that we were doing great damage and destruction to our planet's ecosystems. And um, many of the plants and animals that depend on those ecosystems were declining. And that in turn, um, in response to that decline, uh, the ESA was enacted in 1973. And just before the ESA was enacted, a number of other important environmental pieces of legislation were sort of brought brought about too, the Clean Water Act, the Clean Air Act. Uh, and so it was a really part of a broader environmental movement at the time. Mm-hmm. And at what age did you come into the, the kind of work that you're doing now? Yeah, so um, I, I really got interested in conservation when I was in graduate school, and I was studying medicinal plants that are harvested in the wild from the Appalachian Mountains. And so that really sort of spawned my interest in conservation, and I've been following that path in my career ever since. Mm -hmm. And Becky, for you, you're working uh, in a slightly different capacity, but the ESA is still part of sort of the scope of the work that you're doing. Tell us a little bit about that. Right. So uh, as we build our living collections of plants at at the Botanical Garden, we really... Um, target species that are in need of protection outside of their natural habitat. So we call that XC2 conservation as opposed to NC2. XC2 is protecting plants outside their natural habitat. And so that is um, really what the living collections help to do. And we really do help. The ESA helps us prioritize those species that are threatened and endangered and in need of that protection. Mm -hmm. And how is it that the ESA, um, Endangered Species Act, How does it show up in the everyday work that you do at MOBOD? 
Um, really, it, it really, as I said before, it really just helps us prioritize our work. Um, we're really prioritizing those species that are in need of protection. Um, and so when we are looking to add new species to our living collection, we are looking um, for species that are threatened or endangered and are not held at Missouri Botanical Garden and other gardens around the world. Mm -hmm. Why is it that, you know, in the introduction I mentioned animals, and animals are sort of what people think of most immediately. From your perspective, Matthew, why is it that there is that much more sort of awareness around, uh, you know, critters than there are around flora? I just think it's natural human tendency to be attracted to the large fuzzy creatures. Um, also, many animals sort of play these obvious keystone roles in many of our ecosystems, and that's why they tend to get a lot more attention. Um, and, and plants are really the sort of disenfranchised of, of the organisms on the ESA. And I should mention that over half of the species listed on the Endangered Species Act are plants. Mm -hmm. yeah. And has that number grown over time? Yes, it's, it continues to grow. And, and um, the ESA really only represents a small fraction of those plants that are potentially at risk of extinction in the wild. Mm -hmm. Among the ones that you have worked with, those species, um, whether it was at MOBOT or perhaps in your work elsewhere, is there one that stands out as being a, a success story along the lines of you know, the, the bald eagle or the grizzly bear? <laughs> well, I would say we have um, 40 or so species on the endangered species list that are in our living collection. So that includes those that are living and on display outdoors or in one of our conservatories. Those are that are in our seed bank and those are that are in propagation in our greenhouses that we that the visitors ne not, can't necessarily see on a mm -hmm. visit. Um, so that being said, we're still in the midst of working on a lot of these species. Um, I would say one that we're excited about, um, it's a native to Missouri that we're working with, it's um, pondberry, Lindera melissifolia. It occurs in these swampy areas and these kinds of habitats are disappearing. Um, and so we, are, we were able to successfully um, have a few trips to the, a particular population, the only population in Missouri uh, this year, uh -huh. and identify uh, and map where these were located and collect various types of propagules so that we can propagate it and ensure that um, we can protect it from extinction. Okay. And this is 2023. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Sure. <laughs> now, as far as these habitats are concerned, um, Matthew, the work that you do involves plants in, in the wild. How does a plant like the, um, the berry, the pond, pond berry, berry. That, um, that Becky was talking about, how does that affect animals? Well, a lot of animals depend on plants, um, particularly insects depend on plants for habitats. They may live in the stems or on the leaves of those plants. Many pollinators depend on nectar from the flowers of plants. So they really are the foundation of our ecosystems and they support all life on, on our planet, really. Mm -hmm. You know, plants are the, the central foundation of that. Sure. Now, last year, you were not here in studio, but our producer, Maya Norfleet, went out to, to see you and the work that you were doing, particularly when it comes to extinct plants coming back from 
from the dead. Tell us more about the different ways that you and your department colleagues have been conserving endangered plants and even reviving extinct ones. Mm -hmm. So we really use an integrated conservation approach. And so this approach involves, involves collecting seed and other plant material from wild populations of endangered species. And like Becky mentioned, we're conserving those in our collections at the Botanical Garden. Um, and they essentially provide a safeguard or a safety net in case populations of those species go extinct in the wild. And so we can use those collections in our research that maybe supports recovery efforts with those species. And then that material also provides the source material for restoring or reintroducing those species back into the wild. Mm -hmm. And is there another example that you can provide where that has been successful? Yes, so we've been working with a number of species, um, taking seeds out of our seed bank here at the Missouri Botanical Garden, propagating it with our horticultural expertise, and then reintroducing those plants in the wild. One species is a species called Pine's Ground Plum. Um, Astragalus bibulatus is its Latin name. It's this small little wildflower. It's about six inches tall, and it only grows in grasslands in central Tennessee, kind of around Nashville metropolitan area. And mm. this is a globally endangered ecosystem. And it's known from about five or six populations in the wild. And the Missouri Botanical Garden has been involved in efforts to reintroduce the species to protected areas uh, within this region uh, for the past two decades now. Mm. And so we've, we've, we're increasingly successful at establishing populations of this species and trying to reduce its extinction risk in the wild. Mm -hmm. So this is something that is in Tennessee yeah. You said, and then Becky, you, when you're talking about the pondberry, you said that it is it's, it's something that is native to to Missouri. What else have you worked with that sort of connects the work at Missouri Botanical Garden with the rest of the country? Um, well, like I said, we have um, 40 species on the endangered species list. Um, 23 of those are alive in our living collection, and um, they're from all over the country. So mm -hmm. we have several um, from Missouri. We have several from other parts of the United States, such as Virginia, um, California, Georgia, Tennessee. But we also are protecting species outside of the continental United States. So um, places like St. Thomas, Puerto Rico, um, Hawaii, um, Guam. So we're protecting species that are uh, on the endangered species list from all over the world, all really. Over the world. Okay, so the global connection mm -hmm. is certainly something. Now, your title is Living Collections, and I would assume that people would think of living plants um, not like the ones in my home that my mm -hmm. mother-in-law, uh, she takes very good care of them. I do not. So what is it to be, what does it mean to be in charge of, of living collections at the garden? I always think this is a, a funny question when you're explaining to somebody what you do for a living. Um, and so I, I like, I usually uh, associate it to like a curator at a museum. So uh, we're really managing the collection. So, and that involves everything from what we want to bring into the collection. Like I said, we're prioritizing threatened and endangered species. We document them um, from where they came in the wild, where they are in the garden. We document all of the propagation and cultivation protocols. Um, so there's, and then we're using that data that we're gathering to um, perform analyses that help us do our work better to target 
um, more efficiently and to grow things better mm -hmm. and to learn from our successes and our failures. Mm -hmm. So it really is a, curate, a curatorial role. Right. Now, climate change is something that we've talked about a lot on this show. And many people have observed, you know, how weather um, is, is not necessarily what it used to be. I mean, today it's colder. It has been a very mild winter. An example of this region uh, and the, the way that the climate has changed is with regard to its hardiness zone, which is a sort of grade that gardeners use to determine what they can grow. So that's sort of on the, the home level. Now, Missouri's hardiness zone, along with those across much of the nation, it has shifted about a half zone up, which indicates warming temperatures. And that's up to five degrees Fahrenheit. So this trend toward warmer temperatures, what does that mean for uh, for conservationists uh, across the country and the world who are dealing with warmer temperatures, Matthew? Well, climate change really adds another layer of complexity to how we conserve endangered species because we really need to be thinking about the future climate. Um, many of the things we're doing to sort of deal with climate change with endangered species is we're trying to um, conserve as much genetic variation as possible in our collections <coughs> because the more genetic variability we have, the more likely it is we have uh, that species will have the ability to adapt to a future environmental change or future climate change. And we're also in our like restoration projects working on trying to increase genetic variation and build resilience in populations so that they're more adapted to or adaptable to climate change mm -hmm. in, in the future. So if something hits one strain, it's not going to wipe everything out because there will be others. Exactly. Right. The more genetic variability we have, the more likely it is uh, that species will be able to sort of cope with climate change in the future. Mm -hmm. Becky, with your work, has the change in, in temperatures locally uh, has that made any uh, any change to the endangered plants in particular that are living um, in the collection at the garden? I'm not sure um, necessarily th uh, we can draw those conclusions just yet, but we are, like I said, collecting data constantly. And so um, as we curate the collections, as we track what we have, we actually know when we planted it and when it died and if it died, if it died, when it died and why. So we track all of that kind of information. And so we're using that to um, inform uh, our future acquisition. So what will we be able to grow here now in our current climate and what will we be able to grow in St. Louis in a future climate? And so we can shift our priorities as we start to think about that and what we might not be able to grow any longer and what we might need to do to help conserve that. Mm -hmm. So with the the plants, the seeds, the things that you are collecting, um, you know, you're going out in the wild to see what all is, is going on. How is it that, um, that you were able to tell I me, mean, Becky, you mentioned how much time it takes. How long does it take for you, Matthew, in your work to tell whether what you're doing is working? It, it really is, it can take decades. And essentially when we're working with species on the Endangered Species Act, we're looking at 30 or 40 year time period to recover that species and potentially either downlist it on the Endangered Species Act where it would go from endangered to threatened or to remove it from the Endangered Species Act. That's a long-term process. Mm -hmm. Are there any that stand out in your mind, um, again, as success, sort of looking, 50 years have passed, 
now, you know, in the next 50 years, what kinds of examples do we have to follow? Sure. Well, there, there have been um, around 30 or so species of plants that have been delisted on the Endangered Species Act. A couple come to mind. One grows here in Missouri, Trifolium stoloniferum. It's called running buffalo clover. And it grows in Missouri. It grows in Kentucky uh, and Ohio. And this is a great example of a species that was just this past year delisted from the Endangered Species Act due to successful recovery efforts. So um, biologists discovered new populations. They protected certain um, lo locations where this species occurs. They've been managing the habitat for this species. We've been able to back up genetic material in our seed bank, and all of these contribute to the long-term conservation of the species. And the government decided that um, this species was no longer uh, listed as endangered on the Endangered Species Act. So that's a, that's a great example. Mm -hmm. So it is the government that decides this then? Ultimately. Okay. Yes. Becky, you said that you keep track of when plants die. And so are there species that you are especially worried about or maybe ones that have failed in your line of work? Sure. I would say we're really um, conservative about what we bring into the collection. Um, we are okay with some amount of failure because failure informs future work. Um, it gives us an idea of what can and can't survive. That being said, we don't use the last remaining seeds of a particular species and try it out in the botanical garden. Um, we want to make sure we're doing that in a, in a responsible way, but still um, some of those failures um, and things dying is good information to have. Mm -hmm. Is there something perhaps uh, that you would like to see prioritized in the next you know, couple of decades at least, we won't say 50 years because that's a pretty big goal, but in the next 20 years or so, what would you like to see prioritized when it comes to uh, the next chapter, as it were, of the Endangered Species Act, Matthew? Well, I think we have to keep in mind that the threats that are um, acting on our, our wild plants and animals right now are, are, are not going away. So habitat loss, habitat degradation, damage to the habitats that these species depend upon is, is an ongoing process. And so we need to learn how to do better so we can coexist with the plants and animals and the ecosystems that we depend upon because it's important for our own human well-being. Right. Is there something perhaps, Becky, on the, the local or regional level that MOBOT is especially committed to working on? Um, yeah, I mean, I think, like I said, we're working uh, locally with many species, um, but we're also working all over the world. Um, like I said, uh, the Endangered Species Act is not the only um, prioritizing factor. So we're also working, I want to say we have about 1,400 species in the living collection that are threatened or endangered on some level. So only 40 of those are in the, on the Endangered Species Act. So mm -hmm. I think at Missouri Botanical Garden, our, our goals are much broader too because we have the resources to work on this more global level. Mm -hmm. So we're working in areas like um, Central Asia on crop wild relatives like our apples, pears, uh, and plums and things like that. Um, we're working in places like Tanzania on really rare trees. Um, and, and so I think it's important for us to um, really keep that broad scope and to use our knowledge and our resources 
in, in, in the best ways that we can. Mm-hmm. And Matthew, same question to you as far as the, the priorities, and especially given work that you do with other gardens, mm-hmm. what are some of the things that you are especially committed to? Yeah, so at Missouri Botanical Garden is is one of about 70 or so botanical gardens here in the U.S. that are part of a network uh, of, of botanical gardens in Arboreta called the Center for Plant Conservation. And we've been part of this network since the mid-1980s. And what we're all doing is we're sort of using these scientific best practices to conserve globally rare and endangered species within our respective regions. And uh, we're sort of been building this network and really botanical gardens have been at the forefront of developing the science of, of plant conservation uh, uh, for the Endangered Species Act for many of these, spe- for many of these species. So um, I look forward to continuing working with this network and sort of building the science to do this important work. Matthew Albrecht is director of Mobot Center for Conservation and Sustainable Development, and Becky Sucker is senior manager of Mobot's Living Collections. Thank you both for joining us today. Thank you for having us. This episode was produced by Maya Norfleet. Our audio engineer is Aaron Doerr. This podcast was mixed and edited by Aaron. Our executive producer is Alex Hoyer. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio. Understanding starts here. St. Louis on the Air proudly supports local artists by using music from Life Creative Group. Do you find yourself regularly listening to episodes of St. Louis on the Air? Suggest us to a friend you think might enjoy our conversations. And leave us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the simplest way to help people discover our show. Thank you. St. Louis Public Radio is a member-supported service of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, providing more than 41,000 jobs in the production of wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details at ChooseWood.com.